You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode four, Jerry Mock versus the world. Today we're going to be talking about Jerry Mock, the pilot uh, born in Newark, Ohio, in Licking County, the first woman to fly solo around the world, which she accomplished that feat in 1964. She flew a single-engine plane from Columbus, Ohio, the plane called the Spirit of Columbus, uh, in a trip that took under a month. We'll talk about that trip. We'll talk about uh, the life of, of Jerry Mock. We'll talk about Amelia Earhart, the female aviatrix who attempted this uh, same trip some 25 years, 27 years earlier. And we'll talk about the actual trip, all the crazy things that happened, the close calls uh, of really a very unknown story, but a very important story, um, the story of Jerry Mock. Our guests today are Susan Reed. Susan is Jerry Mock's sister, her younger sister, uh, who was there when all of this happened and still helps spread the story of Jerry Mock some 55 years since her amazing accomplishment. Also, we'll have Wendy Hollinger um, from Phoenix Publishing. She put out, uh, republished Jerry's book, 38 uh, Charlie, which is the name of her plane. Uh, and also Dale Radcliffe, a pilot uh, and also a Jerry Mock expert. Uh, we met them all actually out in the works, a, a museum uh, out in Newark, Ohio, uh, which is a county about 30 minutes uh, northeast of, of Columbus and where Jerry grew up. She ultimately lived here. Uh, she went to Ohio State University and lived in Bexley, Ohio, but lived um, her early years in Newark. And it was really our three guests, Susan, Wendy, and Dale, um, who got the story of Jerry Mock out there to a new generation. Uh, somebody who was you know, very famous in her time briefly, uh, but as time went on, she was forgotten. And the kind of offbeat Ohio history that we love to, to share on the show. So again, thanks so much to, to our guests and for meeting us in, in Newark. Uh, over the summer, we, we conducted those interviews and, and really had a great time. Our beer for the episode today is Altura, the Latin lager from our friends at Endeavor Brewing Company. You can go to EndeavorBrewing.com, located uh, right here, just a few blocks away from where we're recording in Grandview Heights uh, on West Fifth Avenue. Our friend Scott Talmage, uh, the owner in there, do such a great job there. Uh, again, in the Altura we're drinking tonight is... Uh, a Latin lager. It's these Patagonia malt from, from Chile, a place where Scott has been. He's been all over the world, and, and Endeavor has beers from all over the, the, uh, the globe. So as we're trekking around the world today, uh, we thought we would go have an Endeavor. They're always having you explore new types of beers. Um, and the Latin lager, one of my favorites, uh, as it's still kind of an Indian summer here in, in Ohio. As we record. So, again, Endeavor Brewing Company, 
uh, go to endeavorbrewing.com. A couple of quick show notes. Uh, we were just a guest on Bruce Carlson's My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, talking about an old episode we did on Jim Traficant, the congressman from Youngstown, uh, a show we did last season, episode three or episode nine, uh, talking with Eric Murphy, the the filmmaker who made that great film about Traficant, uh, the congressman of Crimetown. If you haven't seen that, uh, you really need to. But again, my history can beat up your politics. That should be out uh, in the next week or two. So really fun to sit down with Bruce. He's been a guest on our show so many times. So also we forgot to announce, but earlier, right before the season started, we won a Columbus Podcast Award uh, for Best Podcast. Our category was travel, um, travel slash places. So I guess, you know, our, we're a history show. We're kind of a time travel show. We didn't really fit one of their categories there. But thank you guys so much for voting. Cool little trophy. They had a, a fun award ceremony uh, and the Columbus Podcast Awards. So that was great. Uh, also, we're going to be featured an article in Columbus Monthly coming up here in a couple of weeks about podcasting. Uh, sat down with them, did a little photo shoot and an interview uh, will be one of the shows featured there. So look for that again on the Columbus Monthly November or, or December. I can't remember. Um, but things are going great and the episodes have been listened to by so many people this season. It's really cool. Please remember to rate and review the show. Uh, we're going to read the next few reviews. So if you go to iTunes and review the show, um, give us four or five stars, whatever, and we'll actually read your review on the air. So if you want to, uh, again, scroll down on your phone and rate and review, that really helps the show. But without further ado, we're going to take a trip around the world. We're going to talk about the life and the amazing journey, the solo trip, the first ever female to fly solo around the world. It's episode four, Jerry Mock vs. the World. <laughs> subject of today's show, Jerry Mock, she was known as the Flying Housewife. She's born in 1925 in, in, uh, in Newark, Ohio. She graduates from Newark in 1943, goes to Ohio State, and she's an amazing student. She's taking engineering classes. She's taking all these science classes. Um, and we talk with her sister and one of our guests, Susan Reed. So great to have Susan here to give us that firsthand knowledge of this, uh, you know, Ohio legend, Geraldine Mock. Uh, but we talked to Susan just about her childhood. How did she get into flying and her aptitude as a, uh, someone who was adept at science and engineering um, and, you know, goes to Ohio State. And now ultimately she would stop her studies when she decides to get married, as so many women did in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, even 50s. Um, and that's how she becomes the flying housewife. But we asked Susan, just about her early days in Newark. Well, actually, it started when she was seven years old. And she, with my parents, took a ride in a Ford Twimotor airplane. Now, keep in mind, I'm 15 years younger, so I wasn't around there. But as she tells it, she was so excited. And when she looked down from the air, she thought, this is something wonderful. And when the plane landed, she went to my parents and said, I'm going to be a pilot. And then when she studied about geography in school, 
She was so excited, she told her friends, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a pilot. I want to see the pyramids, I'm going to ride a camel. And they looked at her like, oh really? But some of her classmates were at the airport when she completed her flight with a big sign, Welcome Home Jerry, class of 1943. Yeah, the class of 1943 in Newark, right? Newark High School, yes. Jerry grew up right here in Newark, Ohio, uh, graduated from Newark High School and then went off to Ohio State University where she majored in aeronautical engineering. She was the only girl in the class. And of course, the guys all thought, well, she was just there to see guys and maybe catch a husband. But when she got the only 100 on a difficult chemistry exam, they realized that, hmm, maybe she was serious. The idea to fly around the world was really something that came out of an argument between Jerry and her husband, Russ, and they're having a, a discussion around the dinner table in, in the early 60s. And Jerry's bored with her life. She's raising these kids. And, and again, somebody who's, you know, and she is a pilot at this time. It's crazy to think that this idea to become the first woman to circumnavigate the globe would happen after an argument with her husband. One evening, Jerry and Russ were just having dinner in December of 1962. And she was talking about how boring her life was. I mean, the kids were off in school, other than Valerie, who was still quite young. And, you know, you clean the house, then it gets dirty all over again. You cook dinner, and you got to clean it all up and start all over. So she was complaining to Russ, there should be something more exciting. At that point, he said, well, then why don't you just get in the plane and fly around the world? She said, (laughs) all right, I will. And that's how it all began. They 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 laughed about it. Yep, nineteen sixty two. And they laughed about it and realized, well, no woman actually had made that flight. So somebody had to do it. Why not Jerry? Jerry Mock decides to fly around the world in nineteen sixty four. And then we said before she was a pilot, but this is not somebody who's an experienced pilot. I mean, to be taking on a mission like this, um, that could be, you know, so difficult and have so many things go wrong we talk with susan about just how inexperienced of a pilot she was right they co-owned the plane with their friend she actually had logged 750 hours but only about 250 hours were solo most of that was with another pilot and her training and all so really she was quite inexperienced our other guests wendy hollinger and, and dale ratcliffe Met Jerry, you know, and put together, reissued her book, 3-8 Charlie, about her trip around the world, a 50th anniversary copy. You know, they could find people who knew about Jerry, even in their small uh, flight community, pilot community in, in Newark. Uh, they decided to share her story and, and got a bunch of pictures, got to know Jerry, um, and really worked with her to, to re-release this, this great uh, story that she, she finally wrote in 1970. We talked with, with Dale, both of these uh, guests are pilots. Dale is an experienced pilot, mechanic. Um, we asked them you know, just about this plane. She's flying a single engine plane over two oceans, three oceans. You know, how dangerous was it and, and what was her plane that she decided to fly? The Cessna 1A that she was flying with uh, was more than capable of doing it. Uh, one of the things about the 180, it's a 1953 model, it had a 225 horsepower 0470 engine, a six-cylinder by Continental. The aircraft is renowned for the amount of lift it generates with its wing, with its power plant, and the capacity inside the cabin makes it be able that anything you can fit in the cockpit, 
you could take off with. And Jerry essentially proved that by putting two huge fuel tanks within the aircraft that extended out to being able to fly 25 hours nonstop. One of the most famous women of the 20th century was Amelia Earhart, aviation pioneer, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. It was a huge deal. Lady Lindbergh, they called her. Um, and she decided um, that her last mission before retiring, she was going to fly around the world. She would have a navigator, um, but she was going to fly around the world in 1937. Earhart would leave on June 1st, 1937, flying west to east from Oakland to Miami to begin her flight and had made it, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way. And then Amelia Earhart famously disappeared. On July 2nd, 1937, in the Pacific Ocean, en route to Howland Island, uh, just outside of New Guinea, uh, her plane, it is believed, went off course, could not find that small island to land on, ran out of fuel, and went down in the Pacific Ocean. I can't honestly tell you whatever happened to Amelia. Um, there's quite a few stories out there. They lined out all the places that she was going to land and pre-positioned fuel and equipment that she might have needed. Okay, her husband was rich and these things yeah. happened. Amelia Earhart was one of Jerry's heroes. Amelia Earhart is definitely American heroin along with their navigator. They were doing something really hard and difficult at that time. It was, it was no easy feat. Even folks in aviation don't know Jerry's story. They think Amelia Earhart is the first one to fly around the world, right. and of course she didn't make it. But like Dale said, she, she was a, a great uh, historical figure too. We don't want to take anything away from that. In 1937, Amelia Earhart was the most famous woman pilot in the world. She had flown the Atlantic alone. Now with navigator Fred Noonan, she would try to fly around the world. First leg, Oakland, California to Hawaii. But there, an accident caused her to make a new start, from Miami to Europe and on to the Far East. Three weeks later, an SOS from the Mid-Pacific was picked up by two men in Los Angeles. The battleship Colorado sent its aircraft out to search several thousand square miles of ocean around Howland Island, the source of the distress signal. Weeks of search activities produced no clues. Amelia Earhart was gone. But the monument she left behind was her impact on the woman's image in America. The Navy and everyone looking for, for Amelia Earhart and her navigator Fred Noonan for weeks. She was never found. And that story, it lived on for forever. We still talk about Amelia Earhart and whatever happened to her. It's one of the great mysteries. Um, and somebody that Jerry, obviously, like they said, looked up to. She was trying to accomplish the same mission that Jerry Mock would become the first person to accomplish. But there's still so many myths about her death. Uh, and we still see, you know, gosh, a history channel just two years ago had this huge blitz that they had figured out what happened to Amelia Earhart. They found new evidence, this famous picture where they found her sitting on a dock and her plane being towed. And she was possibly a, a prisoner of the Japanese army. In, in on these islands, um, and they can't. I watched that show, was intrigued by it, and you know, there's so many myths about what did happen to her. That myth on the History Channel was quickly debunked. We play you this this clip about you know what happened with the History Channel and our fascination in this country with the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. 
We've had an opportunity to speak with and meet a number of aviation historians after our connection with Jerry's story. And I would add, too, that each time something new comes up on the Discovery Channel or whatever, or something new that they're saying, oh, now we've found this, and now we've found this evidence, most of the historian folks kind of just smile and shake their head they're pleased always for attention to history and aviation right. and so they don't poo poo on that very much but they mostly are not convinced might as well put this photo in the fun while it lasted file and it didn't last long a history channel special on amelia Earhart promised to shock us i believe it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt uh-oh. There are new doubts this morning. Doubts that Amelia Earhart and her navigator were photographed alive in the Marshall Islands after crashing in the Pacific. This is Amelia Earhart? That's right. No, that's probably wrong. And her navigator, Fred Noonan? The hairline is the most distinctive characteristic. Probably not him either. As for the blurry hunk of something being towed that was supposed to be the wreckage of their plane, don't count on it. The documentary's theory is the pair were picked up and imprisoned by the Japanese. But a couple of bloggers uncovered what appears to be the original photo published in a travel log book in 1935, nearly two years before Amelia Earhart even took off on her final flight. Matt Hawley, an American living in the Marshall Islands, was one of the bloggers who tracked down the photo. This is one of the magical mysteries of the universe, like where the dinosaurs go, uh, you know, where is Jimmy Hoffa? Just last week, I and most of the world's media outlets stood there as if the latest photo weren't already questionable enough, dissecting the photograph that's since been debunked. Debunked by a second Japanese blogger who says he spent half an hour Googling and found the original photo in Japan's National Library. The History Channel says it has a team of investigators exploring the latest developments. We want to follow the facts where they lead. Whatever happened to who holds the stars up in the sky? Jerry's building up in 63 to make this flight. She's, you know working on some sponsorships and she's going to work with the Columbus Dispatch to paper here to write stories about her trip. They're promoting it. Um, and as Jerry's getting ready, <clears throat> making the preparations for this, you know, massive undertaking, she gets the news that someone else is going to be flying around the world, possibly before her, a woman in California. She has a, an arrival. Now she has to get going before she ever wanted to. Uh, and she's going up against a woman named Joan Miriam Smith. Joan from California was better back. She was more experienced um, and really leaves even a couple of days early uh, than Jerry does from Columbus. So we asked our, our guest, you know, who was Joan Miriam Smith and what was this competition? Well, Joan Miriam Smith was a very accomplished pilot uh, in California. Her husband was an Air Force person. Um, she actually was a flight instructor, so she knew a lot more about flying than Jerry did. And supposedly didn't even realize that Jerry was planning on making this flight. But sources showed that she must have. Yeah. And of course, there were newspaper articles that went across the country finally telling about Jerry's plans. So Joan left two days before Jerry's left. 
and Jerry really was leaving about three weeks earlier than she had planned. So it really made it sort of a race, although neither of them called it that. Mm -hmm. But it was definitely competition. She had a twin-engine airplane that was new, and Jerry flew an 11-year-old single-engine Cessna. Yeah. Quite a difference. Jerry takes off from Columbus on March 19, 1964. The media is there, tons of friends and family are there. Our guest Susan Reed, her younger sister, is there. And if you look at our cover picture, uh, that's Jerry the morning before she took off with the spirit of Columbus behind her. Um, that triumphant morning, we talked with Susan about being there, first person, when she took off. Well, it still just gives me chills just thinking about it. It was so exciting. Um, of course, we, the family, were all there, um, a lot of friends. Uh, Air Force people who had given Jerry some ideas and, and just their, their moral support. Mm-hmm. And the picture that is normally shown uh, of Jerry in front of the plane before she left, she's holding a cup of coffee that I had just given her <coughs> yeah. to try to calm her down and relax. Um, but it was, it was just thrilling. Just as she was taking off and climbing to a higher altitude, we could hear, as she could, the tower controller was saying, would broadcast over the, the place that, uh, well, I guess that's the last we'll ever hear from her. As we did our research we, reading Jerry's book, something really intrigued us. She discusses possible sabotage of her trip, of her plane. A couple of different odd things that happened to the plane uh, before she took off that, that could have been catastrophic. It's not known if this is just errors on their own part. You know, they not do the checklist. Um, you know, did these things even really happen? Um, but there is an element of sabotage in this trip. We talked to Susan ab- about some of those things that happened to her plane, 38 Charlie. The first one I knew about, um, she was just really gaining altitude in her first flight, which went to Bermuda, when she realized that the long-range radio wasn't working. And without it, she could not be heard by anybody, Air Force people, ships, the land, anybody until she was close. So when they got to Bermuda, they they had a chance to remove all the, the fuel tanks in order to check the wiring and find out why it didn't work. It had been disconnected and taped off. Yeah. So it never would work. Now, we don't know for certain that that is sabotage, Perhaps they were working on the radio and forgot to rehook it. But it's odd. It is very odd. Yeah. And then I found out later that the day before she left, Russ, who also a pilot, was just pre-flighting the, the plane, testing all the instruments. And at one point, he revved up the engine on the ground, and oil started pouring out of the oil filter. Now, they were putting in a brand new oil filter. Right. But suddenly this old oil filter that was just ready to blow up was there. How did that happen? When could that have happened? Was it something that was planned to be done and wasn't? But it certainly seems suspicious. And I always said it took a lot of courage for her to do this. And took, after the Sabbath, or after the problems, I thought, no, it took a lot of guts. We talked earlier about how Jerry was an inexperienced pilot, certainly an inexperienced pilot when you consider you know, taking on a, a trip like this. But Jerry had a, a skill that really couldn't be measured, and that was she was just cool under fire. 
She was calm. Um, and she trusted her instruments. She trusted her flight ability. We talk with, with Dale and with Wendy about how cool she was. Um, and also talk about, you know, one thing that really happened to her early is she got a lot of ice on her wings. You know, we go through these de-icing processes before you ever leave on a flight, especially in Ohio. That'll happen to you during the winter. Um, but that's not something that existed back then. And, and first, you know, what, what's the issue with ice on a wing? And how bad is that? And also on her trip, she's you know making these radio calls saying, hey, I got ice on my wings. I need to change altitude. I need to do this and do that to combat it. And nobody's answering her. And she's stuck over the Atlantic Ocean with icy wings in a serious situation. Uh, with her aircraft, she ended up on her flight to the Azores in the nighttime, was flying at lower altitude, and she was getting into a mist and the what basically happens is, is that the aircraft with the, the water molecules, they will combine to a freezing temperature and start making a grit on the, the skin of the aircraft. Um, because it was a slower flying wing, she was able to take quite a bit of ice accumulation. She was probably over a good quarter of an inch on her wing. At this point, uh, she managed that. She didn't have anything to de-ice it. She didn't have any de-icing boots on the wings. She didn't have any kind of glycerine to go out and squirt on it. Certainly didn't have any heat for it. For herself, what she ended up doing, she called for a change of altitude to go higher to get above it. And she flew during the rest of that night with the ice on the wing. When the air is not going over the wing properly, then what happens is you can have the same mount power on the engine have the same airspeed indicated for the aircraft going through the air, but what you'll start noticing is is that you'll start losing altitude because you're starting to actually lose your lifting ability, and that's because the air is becoming more and more disturbed on its pathway over top of the wing. Gotcha. But what she did to correct it and get out of it was to go higher, get out of the mist, fly it, and her plan was to meet the morning sun. And as soon as the sun came out and the radiation started beating on it, then it melted the ice off and she was good. Well, Alex, I just want to say that when we share this story with really experienced pilots and they look at some of these things that happened to Jerry, I think that the, the thing that really sets her apart and makes part of her flight so special is that be, with as little experience as she had, she was very cool under pressure. And she shares in her book that she got excited when things happened, sure, and she called uh, for changes and whatnot and she did get anxious but much more experienced pilots have told us that had they run into some of the challenges that she did they would not have been quite so cool another thing that jerry had up her sleeve she had confidence in her equipment even though she ran across problems that comes down to how cool-headed she was in deducing what her equipment was telling her and what should be true and what's not true and be able to do a process of elimination saying this is what's in error, this is what's correct, and this is what's going to get me there. So it really comes down to knowing your navigation, your equipment, and your confidence in yourself and your abilities with it. Like we said, she takes off on, on March 19th, 1964, uh, and she makes her trip. She actually goes down south and makes her flight across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to Morocco. We talk with, with Susan Reed just about the path of her trip. She's going east, uh, I guess, you know, west to east, across the Atlantic towards North Africa and into Asia and the Middle East. We talk with our guest, Susan Reed, Jerry's sister, 
about Jerry Mock's flight plan. Yeah, Bermuda was her first stop, and the weather was very bad there, so she had to wait several days before she could take off again. Even the commercial flights were canceled at that time. And from there, she went to Santa Maria in the Azores, Casablanca, Morocco, Bowen, Algeria, Tripoli in Libya. One of my favorite stories of the trip is when Jerry flies into Cairo, Egypt. Cairo, which would become really a partner of the Soviet Union in the Middle East at that point. Uh, Jerry lands on the wrong airbase. Instead of landing at the airport in Cairo, she lands on like a secret military base. She lands and, and we talk with, with our guests about, about what happened there, but she looks out her, her window and sees military trucks and men with guns racing towards her as she lands. Well, as a just as a student pilot, I, I think I can really sympathize with uh, uh, you know some of the surprise that that might have happened there. When Jerry was getting close to Cairo, she did not anticipate that she was uh, uh, that close to the airport. In and she, this really only happened because the tower reached out to her and said, "Hey, where where are you? Do you see the airfield?" And so she looked around and she was surprised to see uh, a runway. And so mm-hmm. when she came in and landed, they actually called over the radio, "Where are you?" And she said, "I'm on the runway." And then the the military folks uh, came out and surrounded her. She had actually ended up in Inches. And one of the things that she said was, over there, secret runways are not on the map. Here, uh, uh, secret runways are clearly marked that you ought not land there. But uh, there, they kept them secret by not putting on on the map. So with Jerry, they were talking to her the whole time and giving her instructions. Meanwhile, she was actually carrying out those instructions on this airport right down to the point (laughs) where saying, where is this, this airplane? And, yeah, I'm sitting on your runway, and obviously it was not. So it, it, it's nothing about her navigation or anything like that. You, you put something on the ground, and it's a big airfield. And, it's uh, someplace she's never been before. And never yeah. been there before. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yep. It wasn't Jerry's only mix-up when she was flying over the Middle East. She lands in Saudi Arabia at one point, and the men who came out to, to see the plane, she gets out. And they keep looking inside the plane. She's talking with some of the people who came to see her. And again, men keep climbing into the plane and looking in there. And they're seeing it's just one seat. And she had a little suitcase. She had two outfits. Uh, she had some like flats to fly in and some, and some heels that she would wear when she was on the ground. And, and kind of two different pants or you know, two different suits. Um, and they keep looking in, looking in, and realize that there's no man. She's flying alone. And when they say and they yell to the crowd... There's no man. People actually cheer. You know, a woman in Saudi Arabia was not allowed to drive a car until just the last couple of years. You know, and I love thinking about just how that blew those uh, people's minds, that a woman was flying a plane alone. Women were not allowed to even drive a car at that point. Even American women uh, were not allowed to. So it never occurred to anybody that a woman could fly an airplane. And they had never seen such a thing. But they were excited. They knew she was coming the first you know, fly, woman flyer. But they thought that there was a man hidden in the back of the plane. And so they greeted her, excited to talk with her, looked at the plane, looked back and talked with her, and looked at the plane. She realized they were waiting for the pilot. Mm-hmm. So finally, one of the men went over and looked in the open door of the plane, 
Obviously, there was only one seat, and the whole rest of the plane was fuel tank. Right. No one would have fit, so he said, there was no man. It's not to say that Jerry didn't have some troubles with her, her plane, the Cessna. Charlie, as she called it, the spirit of Columbus. But she has a lot less trouble than Joan Miriam Smith does. The California pilot who left two days earlier to try and beat Jerry is having all kinds of trouble. We talked with our guests uh, just about why Jerry beats Joan in this race, this race that became kind of a, a big media story. Which woman will become the first woman to circumnavigate the globe? And it becomes clear as Jerry lands in Oakland, California uh, and makes her way across the country back to Columbus that she's going to win. Jerry Mock is going to become the first woman to solo fly around the world, and she's going to do it in under a month when she lands in Columbus on April 17, 1964. Joan Miriam Smith, the woman who was flying around the world at the same time, was in a twin-engine Piper Apache. So to your question, you know, would a bigger plane be better? Uh, Joan actually had a lot more technical problems, and so uh, she was held up a great deal because of that. It wasn't close. The Joan actually left uh, two days before her. From California? That's correct. And then Jerry, but Jerry came in, um, I, I think, uh, weeks ahead of yeah, about three Joan. weeks. Joan was almost two months, really, in the whole thing. At one point, she was lost in the Brazilian jungle while they were having some kind of revolt there. She had all kinds of engine problems with her twin-engine plane. So it, it wasn't really even close. They also, neither of them cared for being uh, illustrated as a race, uh, Jerry in particular. They were both setting out to, to make a record and do something significant. They happened to come to a head all at the same time and, and work to, to be that person, but they really didn't enjoy being reported on as though they were in a race because that's just not how it had started. <laughs> Additionally, Jerry really wasn't in a hurry when she planned this trip. She wanted to see the world. She wanted to ride on elephants and camels and visit the pyramids. She wanted to stop at each place, but because Joan was on the move as well. Uh, the dispatch and her husband Russ back in Columbus were pressuring for her to yeah. go, go, go. And of course, had she not come in first, she would not in fact have been first. The spirit of Columbus is as much one of adventure now as in 1492. It's what carried Mrs. Jerry Mock from her Ohio hometown to Oakland, California by way of the world. She is the first woman ever to circle the globe alone ever to fly the Pacific alone from west to east, and ever to cross the ocean in a single-engine family plane. She starts on the final leg of her journey back to Columbus by way of Texas to pick up the precise number of miles to qualify for a true round-the-world flight. Mr. Mock waves his wife off on the runway. He sparked the flight by suggesting it as a way of getting out of the house. Back home after nearly 23,000 miles in a month's time, Mrs. Mock gets a heroine's welcome from Ohio, which also gave aviation the Wright brothers and astronaut John Glenn. We found that newsreel coverage of, of Jerry's landing and accomplishing her, her goal. And it's so condescending, you know. This idea to fly around the world, uh, an idea from her husband to get her out of the house. 
that's the kind of stuff you get in good old-timey newsreel coverage. We talked earlier about the air traffic controller said, I guess that's the last we'll ever see of her when she left Columbus. Amelia Earhart had tried it and she had failed. Why did people think this flying housewife, as they called her, uh, was going to be able to accomplish it? But on April 17th, she does land in Columbus. And everyone's there. She lands at night. The media is there. There's pictures. The governor, um, she's given you know these awards and, and does interviews with the Columbus Dispatch. It's all over the papers. Jerry Mock has become the first woman to fly around the world solo. An incredible accomplishment. We talked to her sister Susan, who was there that night when she lands, and how exhilarating it must have been to know that her sister was home, safe and sound. 29 days, yeah. 19 stops. We knew she was a very accomplished pilot, even though she was inexperienced, but we knew she didn't take chances, so we didn't really worry. But anything can happen. But when she finally landed that day, it was so exciting. I, I, sometimes I feel like it was just yesterday. Too bad it wasn't. I was only 23 years old. <laughs> but there were a lot of prestigious people there. Uh, Governor James Rhodes, Mayor Jack Sensenbrenner, who proclaimed Jerry Mock Day the following day. Nice. Congressman Sam Devine, a lot of Air Force generals, and a deputy from the FAA with a telegram from President Johnson inviting her to come to the White House. Jerry's invited to the White House to see President Johnson. There's a ceremony out in the South Lawn. Uh, it's actually her daughter's birthday. They, the White House gives her a birthday cake. Uh, there's a presentation of a medal, and you know, President Johnson makes some remarks, uh, and that story's spread all over the world. Uh, pretty cool event. There's some great pictures of that. That medal's actually still on display at the museum, the works, in, in Newark, downtown Newark, Ohio. <clears throat> a great uh, museum and, and place for kids to go and play as well. So if you've got young kids, um, maybe check out the works if you're here in central Ohio. Uh, not only do they have a lot of great Jerry Mock stuff, including you know a replica of her Cessna, the Spirit of Columbus, uh, but also a lot of really cool exhibits for, for children to look at. But Jerry becomes a, a little bit of a celebrity, even if it's just for 15 minutes. We talk with her sister, Susan Reed, you know, about that trip to the White House, her brief celebrity, uh, and we play a little clip. Jerry appeared on a really popular game show called To Tell the Truth. You may remember the show. They'd have three people, and you'd try and figure out a celebrity. You'd try and figure out which of those three people was the real person, who was the real Jerry Mock. You know, when I grew up and got to know her, um, I often flew with her in that plane, and at the time never dreaming that that plane was going to be in the Smithsonian, yeah. that, that it was going to be setting world records. She did go to the White House, yes, and received a very, the prestigious award uh, by the president. Um, it was Valerie's birthday, and she got a birthday cake. Please open your envelope and follow along, if you will, as I read. I, Jerry Mock, am a wife and mother. Recently, I took a month vacation from my husband and three children. Alone in our 11-year-old family airplane, I flew some 23,000 miles. In so doing, I became the first woman in history to fly an airplane completely around the world. Signed, Jerry Mock. Jerry would go on to set a number of aviation uh, records not just on that trip, but, you know, she's the first woman to fly the Pacific in both directions. Uh, the first woman, you know, she had a lot of distance records that she set, um, a lot of different awards. But one of the awards is this French uh, Aviation 
medal given away annually called the Louis Blario Medal. She's awarded it in 1965. Uh, Louis Blario, one of the pioneers of aviation, the first man to ever fly across the English Channel in 1909. But it's a very prestigious award. And if she wasn't the first woman to win it, she wasn't, but she was certainly the first American woman. We talked with Dale and just about, it's on display at the works as well, but that was the medal that, you know, the French were really the ones who were the keepers of, of aviation records and aviation lore ever since going back to the days of the Wright brothers and just how important this medal was to her and, and to aviation. You know, just this fact that a, a, a housewife from Columbus, Ohio, would be honored in, in this way among, you know, the greatest pilots and aviation historians and enthusiasts and innovators. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, it's here at the museum. But Louis Blériot. Yeah, it, it, the medal is here one of two things. One, she's either the first American to ever receive it, or she's the first American woman she, pilot to receive it. They, this is where she had to actually, uh, in France, is where they actually track all these records. And that's where it's done at, because France is an integral part of flight. Yeah, especially the beginning. Yep, and... Blaria, he's the one that flew across the England, English Channel on what basically looked like a bicycle with wings on there <laughs> and everything, okay? But to say that they gave that to her after the fact, after everything settled down, she got this medal. It's probably the most precious thing you can ever see about aviation because there's nobody else that's running around with this medallion at all. Mock has a number of different dedications, statues, uh, and, and different things around not just Ohio, Central Ohio, but around the country. Her plane, the single-agent Cessna 38 Charlie, it hangs um, at the Air and Space Museum in Virginia. It's, it's a Smithsonian facility, not the one that's on the mall, but there's one in, in Northern Virginia where her plane can be seen. Whether you're at our airport, John Glenn Columbus International has a Jerry, uh, Jerry Mock statue. We talked with Susan just about some of those places and memorials to the first woman to fly around the world. And we'll also hear a presentation from the mayor of Newark from a couple years ago uh, when he declares Jerry Mock Day, uh, the unveiling of her statue that's in the courtyard at the works. Uh, and that was such a special day for, for Susan and, uh, and Wendy and Dale to see Jerry finally get her due in her hometown. Well, here in Newark, Ohio, at the, the works, our local museum, we have a statue of Jerry uh, in the courtyard. And on that statue, she's holding a copy of the book that she wrote called 3-8 Charlie, yeah. part of the call numbers of her plane. And then upstairs in the works, we have a uh, plane that looks exactly like Jerry's. And you can sit in the seat of the plane, surrounded by the fake fuel tanks. <laughs> and it certainly gives the the visitor is a whole new appreciation to the fact that she flew a little tiny thing like this across the ocean. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and you said the, the actual Spirit of Columbus plane is in the Smithsonian uh, out in Virginia? Yes. Okay. 
And we also have a statue of Jerry in Columbus at the Columbus Airport, or now the John Glenn International Airport. And that one was um, dedicated on the 50th anniversary of her flight. Also, then she was um, inducted into the great Ohioans, along with Annie Oakley, mostly men in that. Yeah. And then in 2015, she was inducted into the First Flight Society at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, the Wright Brothers Memorial. My mother was a Wright. We think that might have had something to do with her interest in flying. Uh, But she was inducted into that, and that was really exciting. When she became the first woman to fly solo around the world in 1964, whereas on March 19, 1964, Jerry Mock, a 38-year-old housewife and mother of three at the time, would begin to make history as she departed from Port Columbus International Airport embarking on a flight that would take her across all of the continents and all of the oceans of the world for a total of 29 days, 21 stopovers, 22,860 miles, thus making her the first woman to successfully circumnavigate the globe and in doing so added prestige and honor to this community of ours. Whereas Jerry's flight was not only made possible by her determination and piloting skills, but by the usefulness, dependability, and reliability of her 11-year-old Cessna 180 plane, named the Spirit of Columbus, but affectionately referred to as Charlie by Jerry, that currently hangs proudly in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, just south of the, at the location just south of Dulles Airport, outside of our nation's capital. Whereas today, the city of Newark is honored and proud to celebrate the unveiling of a bronze statue honoring this accomplishment of our very own Jerry Mock to be permanently displayed at the Works Lefevre Courtyard. Now, therefore, I, Jeff Hall, Mayor of Newark, Mayor of the great city of Newark, Iowa, do hereby proclaim September 14th, 2013, as Jerry Mock Day in Newark, Ohio, and urge all citizens to appropriately observe the day in recognition of this historic and record-breaking endeavor of this Newark native. Thank you. Again, like we said, the Works Museum, where we did these interviews uh, in Newark, Ohio, has a, just a giant uh, replica plane of the Spirit of Columbus. You can sit in it. You can see just how small the space was. You can put your hands on the steering wheel um, and really realize how cramped it was to make that trip. The entire plane is just all gas tanks. You know, there's, and like her little suitcase that goes behind the seat, you know, that's it. It's really cool, but the, how that replica came to be in the works uh, is thanks to our guests today, Dale Ratcliffe and Wendy Hollinger. Dale was kind of the unwitting uh, part of the story uh, where it became his job, uh, his duty to get this plane into this museum. When the works was looking to uh, put in a permanent exhibit, they invited, they initially reached out to me and said, hey, because of your knowledge of meeting her in the book, uh, why don't you come to this committee meeting? We're just going to have some ideas. And so I said to Dale, oh, Dale, why, you're the one that knows all about planes and flying. Why, you've got to join me at this meeting. <laughs> and while we were there and they were, we were just throwing ideas around, somebody said, hey, could we put a plane in the works? Could we put a, an actual plane in here? And of course, we all looked at Dale, and he mistakenly said, "Yes, we could do that." <laughs> so it's your fault, Dale. 
No, they're leading questions. Like, yes, you could do that. I didn't actually mean me would be getting it in here. The children that come in here, the young adults that come here to the Works Museum, could actually sit in the cockpit. And get I'm going to sit sense. in it here in a minute. Yeah, yeah. You get the sense of what it would be like to sit in a cramped cockpit for all those hours flying across open water and other places of the world. And that's one of the reasons why this was such a, a good idea on the works part to think this way with their permanent display to put that aircraft in. Yeah, that's cool. It, yeah, yeah, to really give people an idea. And plus, most people don't generally ever think they can approach an aircraft and look at it. Um, this one is one that people could actually go approach, look at, touch, and see what it is. And, and most people will find out, wow, there's not much here to be actually sitting in. Jerry Mock passed away on September 30th, 2014, in Florida. She had lived in Florida uh, in her later years, and really the years that Wendy and Dale, our guests, got to know her. There's a really fitting tribute that Dale and, and Wendy were able to help organize uh, to spread the ashes of Jerry Mock over the Gulf of Mexico. We asked them to, to tell that story, um, and it's really touching, and, and how many people that, that were involved and how just awesome of a send-off that would have been for this aviation pioneer, Jerry Mock, the first woman to fly solo around the world. As I mentioned, we had the opportunity to meet a lot of people and to introduce people to Jerry. Uh, we became kind of a point person because we were doing the publication and she wasn't quite as reachable. One of the many people that we had an opportunity to introduce to her was Dr. Tom Navarre. He was an anesthesiologist in El Paso. El Paso was one of the last stops that she made on her trip and he was a young boy then and he had always been quite enamored with Jerry and her story. He came and met her in person and was so honored. He flies a 180. He flew to Florida and met her and he actually in his life has patented uh, a, a piece of equipment to gracefully disperse ashes from his plane. He didn't speak with her about that, however, and in fact, Dale had the opportunity to have the conversation with her at a later time. Tom, being a gentleman that he was, he uh, didn't know what she wanted to do upon her death on this, and he thought it would be more appropriate that uh, she would probably want to have her ashes scattered. Uh, in which case, the way Wendy was saying earlier that she loved talking about the events around the world and stuff. And that's where a lot of uh, my conversations with Jerry would go because I lived outside the country for 20 years and been a lot of places that she'd talked about. And we would talk about things that are going on politically t at that time and today as well. Um, but the thing is, is that we were on a conversation in India and she was talking about the fact of these things about the poor people in India and they would go to the Ganges River and throw their ancestors into the waters their ashes hoping that they would have a better life when they came back again with the incarnation if you believe in that. So the thing was that that was my segue point to ask her what her intentions were, were you planning on being buried or anything? She said, oh no, I plan on being cremated and they're going to throw my ashes out here in the Gulf off a boat. And I said, well, Jerry, you know, um, I'll let you know, a gentleman that you met, Tom Navarre, he has offered 
to actually, and he's certified to do this, to actually, when you pass away, to take you up in his aircraft and scatter your ashes over the Gulf. And on top of that, another gentleman that we knew, Dick Merrill, out of Tennessee, he has a Cessna 180 as well. And I understand these two gentlemen, these people just didn't fly in on a whim to go talk to her. She didn't want to talk to anybody really unless they were pilot or anything like that. Yeah. All right. So these two gentlemen, they, they contacted us and she agreed to see them. And Dick was one of them. And he was down there and he had asked her for permission to paint his Cessna 180 in the exact same colors as the Spirit of Columbus, her Charlie. And she'd say yes. So on top of this, I mentioned what Tom was going to do with his aircraft on delivering her ashes and scattering. And I said, and if you don't go away too soon, I said, Dick will have his aircraft painted in probably about six months or something like that. And I said, he'll probably be somebody that we would approach. I said, would you care to have um, this mock up of Charlie flying lead with Tom being a wingman scattering your ashes? And I have to tell you, Alex, uh, this is the first time I saw this woman choke up. She's quiet for a few minutes, and it's about to do it to me right now, because I remember it so clearly. She actually had a, a tear come out of her eye on that and said yes, and uh, she liked that. I think that was just another one of those things that uh, was helping her come to terms with some things in her life. And so. then we had the opportunity really to organize the actual event after her passing. And Dr. Tom flew his Cessna 180 from El Paso. Dick and Ginger Merrill threw the, flew their Cessna 180 painted. And we mean exactly. It says Spirit of Columbus. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, to honor her. And we invited a young lady named Shasta Waiz. She had also met Jerry uh, before her passing. She was uh, the first female female private pilot born in Afghanistan and she wanted to be the youngest woman to fly around the world and she had come to meet Jerry and to get some inspiration and they had spoken together so uh, while the the replica plane flew in the lead Dr. Tom flew with her ashes and we had the honor to be the third plane in that flight and to record that and with us was Shasta Waiz she was the exact person to have in that plane and we felt like we were literally assisting in passing the torch she did then become the youngest woman to fly solo around the world just a few years later and she continued to speak about and honor Jerry throughout her flight from Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too from the Queen City to Lickery Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is 3-8 Charlie, Jerry Mock's autobiography 
re-released with the help of our guests uh, Dale and Wendy um, in 2013 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of her solo flight uh, circumnavigating the globe. But it is a story of, of that trip and all the crazy things that happened. We couldn't get to you know, maybe even half of the things that happened in her life and on that flight. Um, and you can get that book at 3.8, the number's 3.8charlie.com, uh, or obviously you can get it on, on Amazon. But again, thank you so much to Susan for always sharing and being willing to share her sister's story, and to Wendy Hollinger and Dale Ratcliffe. Um, Wendy's a publisher, uh, and Dale works so much on, on that book, and, and there's a lot of great pictures in there, um, really spiced up the original, original copy, uh, which you couldn't even find, which is one of the reasons why uh, Wendy decided to to reissue the book and and give it a you know an update a 20th century or 21st century reboot. Uh, but again, the book is three eight Charlie. If you want to learn more about Jerry Mock, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again to our guests. Uh, we had a great time in Newark, Ohio. I think it's our first, uh, well, I guess our second interview, the second woman from Newark. Uh, we did an episode Ohio versus Victorian age about Victoria Woodhull the first woman to run for president, the most interesting woman in the world, we called her. Victoria was born in Homer, Ohio, in Licking County uh, in the 19th century. So that's two women, fascinating women, that we've covered from Licking County here in central Ohio. Uh, again, you, we have so many show ideas that, that we keep getting from our guests. We love it. Email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com if you want, will have questions for us. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, the more the merrier there. We're posting all the time with different clips from shows and things that we're up to as we travel the state, um, especially as you know, being a board member with the Ohio History Connection. Uh, we really do get around and try to highlight some of those great uh, historical things that are happening across the state of Ohio. So appreciate everybody who follows us. And again, on Twitter at Ohio V the World or Instagram at Ohio V the World Podcast. Uh, so much going on, guys. So we really appreciate you guys making this show so much fun for us. Our next episode will be another innovator. It'll be Ohio vs. Invention. And we'll talk about Garrett Morgan of Cleveland, Ohio, one of the great inventors of the 20, uh, 19th and 20th century, an African-American, the man who invented the gas mask, the first traffic light. We'll talk about everything he overcame. And we'll talk with his granddaughter, um, who will tell us the story of a man the media used to call the Black Edison. Really looking forward to that. You know, we try to find these slightly lesser known Ohio history figures, uh, but no less important and a really cool story. And we'll talk about Garrett Morgan next week. Again, rate and review the show. Scroll down if you're listening on your phone right now and you're not driving or you're at a traffic light. Uh, scroll down, write us a little review. We're going to read a couple of reviews on the air here in these next couple of episodes. So thanks again for listening, guys. And this has been Episode 4, Jerry Mock vs. The World. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.